And so for us to create a strategy in a linear in a linear format would, would is just it's it's a losing proposition. Welcome to the Ministry at Scale podcast. I'm your host Chad Williams. Join us as we discuss trends, learn from experts, and share practical tips to help your ministry multiply its digital impact. Well, today I'm excited to have Rob Wassel joining us. Rob is a founder and executive director of Seeds Global Innovation Lab. It really, really, Rob is a strategist. He's a practitioner. He has had a lot of training. He's also a facilitator in what's become known as design thinking. And, and so I'm really excited to be able to learn from Rob about how he's bringing this concept of design thinking to nonprofits and ministries and, and, and helping them tackle tough market problems. So welcome, Rob. We're glad you're hey, happy on the show. Thanks, Chad. Thanks, Chad. It's really great to be here. Thank you very much. So Rob, first, could you just walk us through your work experience and how you became to be interested in design technology or design thinking? Yeah, sure. Of course. Of course. So um, I had been serving at an international NGO for some years and um, focusing on advancement, right, fund development and communications marketing and um, had done that for about 10 or 11 years. And then I had some health issues and had to take some time off. And when I was, I took a sabbatical, right? You know, took a couple months off, which was great to be able to do that. Hired a sabbatical coach and mm -hmm. sort of went this through this. I highly recommend it if anybody ever does that, right? Taking on somebody who can coach them and help them think straight. Um, and it was really just sort of battling through what I'm going to do because I couldn't travel anymore. I was traveling about four months a year on the road um, in the U.S. mostly, but about three to four international trips a year. So um, I knew I couldn't do that and went back into the NGO that I was serving at and just said, look, I can't um, move in this direction anymore and recognize that there was a gap um, in the strategic planning process. Hmm. And, um, and so my boss was like, well, you know, write a job description. And so I wrote a JD, wrote a white paper um, just on why we needed somebody overseeing strategy, not as a, sort of a, a dictator top-down approach, but more of a catalyst um, to catalyze the leadership and the, 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 you know, the, the larger portion of the organization toward um, a, a particular direction. And so I moved into that space, but quickly uh, realized the, the bigger gap even for myself, especially, and not just for our organization, was um, the gap of innovation, how innovation feeds healthy strategy. So I connected up with my brother, who is the VP of strategy and innovation for the largest healthcare network in the country. And under one of his downlines of management was this stellar innovation lab. And I'm kind of a proof of life guy. So um, I'm thinking, okay, this is, yeah, it looks cool. looks fun, right? But um, I wanted to see more in terms of the ROI and the back end. And um, I recognize they had clients, and I won't mention their client list, but they have four, a number of Fortune 500 company clients that they work with all over the world hmm. that would, believe it or not, I live in Orlando. They'd fly into Orlando to work on major challenges like autonomous vehicle problems. And you're talking about a hospital's innovation lab, right? Um, working outside of their, their main focus of healthcare. 
And when I was there, um, I worked on a project. I volunteered on a multi-day project. And I heard one of the senior VPs say to me, he said, look, he goes, we will never learn what we need to learn by looking inside ambulatory care. We have to look outside of healthcare and then import new knowledge into our, our context. And I thought, wow, if that's not um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, an indictment on uh, some of our institutions in the faith-based community, we can have sometimes a tendency to be a bit myopic. Um, and so if one organization has questions about, you know, whether it's technology or, you know, digital advancement, what have you in their area, they're going to call somebody that they know in that yeah. space. And they're not typically going to look outside, not only of their own, you know, their own uh, orbit, if you will, uh, forgive the term industry, yeah. um, but they're not going to look even in analogous examples outside in maybe corporate or entrepreneur areas or um, areas that don't make a lot of sense. And so um, I raised a lot of money, hired the lab and the folks that started the lab, and they came in and trained 13 of us for a year. Um, I mean, a year, like literally an entire 12 months, every Tuesday, all day on innovation and design thinking. And then um, from that place, we spun up a lab. I uh, brought a few folks over, carved off the lab separate um, in one sense from the organization as a DBA under the NGO. And, um, and just hung up a shingle. And um, we started focusing on, um, obviously, design thinking as a means to feed healthy strategy. And I think for me, the tipping point was I recognized that um, this concept of creating strategy in a long linear process is broken. I, I mean, I would even go as far as to say three to five years, it's, it's broken. Um, and of course, you know full well with the advancement of technology, Moore's law, Martech's law, the, 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 the rate of change that's happening today is so exponential. It's accelerated at such a rate that we can no longer keep up. And so for us to create a strategy in a linear, in a linear format um, would, is just, it's, it's a losing proposition from the beginning because everything around us is changing so fast. Think about culture technology, of course. Um, think about uh, the volume of data we have access to and how it's changing um, so fast. Uh, religion, uh, think about finance, healthcare, um, governments, geopolitics, et cetera, et cetera. The rate of change is so fast. That means those who are serving, our customers and our end users, they themselves are also changing. And so to create a linear strategy that goes over a period of a long time, three, five, eight, 10 years, mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense because we can no longer intersect with those people that we're serving, our customers and end users. And so that's where innovation and particularly design thinking made a lot of sense to me. Um, and it's where it sort of clicked because I realized creating strategy in a short iterative process where I can stay connected to my end users in real time all the time um, and sort of co-create solutions by, with, and for them rather than delivering solutions that we assume they need uh, is a far better model than creating a strategy that loses its efficacy over three to five years because of that rate of change. So, so Rob, you, you just shared a lot. So for, I've, I just want to kind of take down the path of, uh, of a strategic coach during your sabbatical. So, so tell me about that. What was that like? Well, I had been told, and I'd say it was, it was a, it was a total godsend. Um, I met somebody and had been just, um, you know, who, who came into our organization for one reason. And I found out that he had coached about 700 C-suite leaders and pastors. Um, he's since become a good friend. His name is Roy King. 
And, um, and he is a stellar coach. Um, he's transitioned, uh, he's helped leaders transition from a major area of life that they've spent quite a bit of time to, to a completely different direction. Um, and so, although he wouldn't call himself a counselor by any means, he is no doubt a coach. Um, it's one of those experiences where um, using a sabbatical coach helped me uh, gain insights on, okay, how, how have you seen God use you over the last 20 or 30 years of your, you know, your, your work history? Mm-hmm. Um, what are the patterns? What are the consistent things that you've seen, regardless of what role you've had? Um, and then identifying two or three keywords that articulate um, really what God has poured into you. And then being able to leverage those things to see how you could pour those out into other people in the future. Um, looking at um, not just, um, you know, your calling on your life, which is that macro 60,000 foot sort of um, component that follows you everywhere. Um, but also looking at the contribution, how you can use that in the future. And so using a sabbatical coach for me was just absolutely the best thing I could do. And I've got a lot of friends who've taken sabbatical and I've referred them to um, Roy and others. Yeah. And, um, and it, it's, it's a stellar um, model when you take time off to have somebody sort of guiding you through a process. It's not heavy handed. It's mm-hmm. not onerous. It's not, you know, read these 15 books. Um, it's a slow kind of contemplative process, but um, having somebody that can help you make sense of your past and then make sense of what the future could look like for you has been really helpful. So I did that four and a half years ago, but I meet with Roy. In fact, we have a meeting next week. So um, I meet with him every few months and um, it's just helpful to to, to yeah. make sense of your world, you know. And, and how long was that sabbatical for you? Was it a full year? No, no. I took a, I took three months off and um, yeah. So uh, three months, 90 days met once a week for about one to two hours, had a little homework here and there, you know, in between that time, some reading, that type of thing, but um, really helpful. Yeah. And it was mind blowing how quickly I could move from, because, and I think too, for me, I mean, you know, when you're doing something for a long time, obviously you become sort of an SME in that area. Um, You become comfortable in that area and your brain uh, in many respects, doesn't think divergently. It mm-hmm. sort of converges on what you've done mm-hmm. and then um, creates very minimal plausible futures for yourself. And so I think the coach helped me sort of open up the paradigm quite a bit, you know, back that aperture out quite a bit and, yeah. um, and, and see additional opportunities in the future. I would have never imagined I would be in the space of them today, five mm-hmm. years ago. That's, that's amazing. Now, now you, you talked about strategy as historically being a linear process and it really needs to be nonlinear or uh, more, I don't know if randomized is the right word, but I'm just curious for you personally, are you wired as a linear thinker or are you wired as a more random, random thinker? That's a great question. Um, I am, I, I like order. And mm-hmm. I like um, constructs and frameworks. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so perhaps that answers your question. <laughs> I, so yeah. when I think of, yeah, when I think of strategy, it's, it's characteristically something that um, I think as a very systematic process. Yeah. Um, that's, that's how I, I typically I, I, I had looked at it. Um, so, so, was it I've a, learned, so was it a challenge to be able to change some of your thinking about that? And Yeah, uh, absolutely. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It, it really was. And I think, again, this concept divergent versus convergent thinking, mm-hmm. um, I think it's I think it is um, one of the Kelly brothers that talks about um, divergent thinking and innovation. Um, if you're familiar with the idea, of course, um, you, and in fact, you could probably pull up his his I believe he did a TED talk on divergent, convergent thinking. But yeah, I think it's your, our, our, our brains are naturally wired to converge on solutions. And, um, and I think in the same way, when we think about frameworks as well, mm-hmm. and um, for, you know, to think about innovation in particular for our organizations, our teams, um, we have to be very comfortable with not only moving into a space of divergence, but a space of complete ambiguity and unknown, and then resting in that place, um, resting in that space of, of the unknown quite comfortably to be able to, to um, innovate well. And so, yeah, it was a, it's both, there's kind of this argument of nature and nurture on whether you can do it well um, because it's innate, it's in you or whether you need to learn it. Um, I, I yeah. sort of believe it's a bit of both that, um, and if you're, and if it's not natural to you, I do think people that are, are highly systematic, they don't think in a divergent way. I think they can learn it. No doubt. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because uh, I, I am very much a linear processor, linear thinker. And I, I wonder how much of it depends on a person's self-awareness uh, be, because one thing I've noticed about myself is that the, f- the first idea that I, where I really grasp something, that, that idea really, like I have a high loyalty to that idea and that concept. And when I'm, when I'm introduced with other alternatives, I have to intentionally tell myself to open up my mind, consider mm-hmm. new options, see what's available. But it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's an intentional process that I have to go through to, to do that. Where I think other people are just automatically, every idea is a great mm-hmm. idea and they, they, they bounce things off and I don't know. Have you seen how a person's personality plays into some of that? Yes, I, I have. I think you've got a couple of factors here. I really appreciate the, the fact that you pointed out personality, right? So just sort of, and that's, that's, that's who we are. There's nothing right or wrong about that, right? It's just yep. innate within us. It's part of our DNA. Um, but the reason we actually called the lab seeds was because we would say the greatest obstacle to innovation is the person in the mirror. Um, because of your habitual ways of thinking and doing and judging and assuming, um, because of our tendency to have fear about the unknown fear about what others will think fear about failure, um, Mm -hmm. because of our tendency to position and posture. Um, and like you said, Chad, because of our tendency to, to, um, tie our identity, our Mm -hmm. identities into that thing we're managing, or we've created or the team or the organization. And so we'd say, you know, so seeds is based off of John 12, 24, where Jesus says, unless a kernel wheat fall to the ground and die, operative word, die, Mm -hmm. um, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit or many seeds. And so the question we would ask is, what needs to die in the way that that I think? What needs to die in my habitual ways of doing things? Um, And essentially, the core of that is to uh, sort of use curiosity as the antidote to my assumptions. And like you said, it's the blind spot issue, right? I need to go be very self-aware of my tendency to do all of those things that are driven out of the human condition um, that really prevent us from me and us as a team, therefore, from innovating and essentially from seeing what God wants to do with our organizations. 
Man, I, I, I love your explanation of where the seeds, con your seed concept comes from. And I never would have guessed that, you know, when, when I just, you know, I never would have guessed that without that explanation, but that is so, I, I, I don't know about you, but I found so often in my life that is what God uses to open up an, another greater opportunity is when, when we learn to die to ourselves, when we learn to yeah. open, hold things with an open hand, because yeah, if, exactly. if we're holding on to it too tightly, if God has to pry our fingers open, that can be really painful. But uh, learning to die to ourselves really is the the window to the next opportunity that God has for us. And it's not just a one time thing either for for me anyway. It's a it's a almost a daily process. Yeah, absolutely. And I would argue it is the number one. I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but that's okay. I would argue, Chad, it's the number one reason why our organizations can't innovate. So think about a tool, right? We use a tool of design thinking. It's a great yeah. tool. It gives us a common language. We're no longer, you know, talking like the Tower of Babel. Um, we have a common tool and a common language that we can utilize for innovation. Um, but without the right mindsets and postures, having that tool is like giving my child a chainsaw. He'll have the right tool to cut that tree down with, but he's probably going to cut his feet off with it instead. Um, and so the mindsets and postures are paramount. It's kind of the other side of the coin, right? Of innovation. Yeah. yeah. It's just funny you bring up chainsaw. I actually just taught my 15 year old how to run a chainsaw <laughs> this last Saturday. So uh, thankfully he still has got all his limbs. In place. There you go. There you go. Right. right. But imagine, I would imagine part of that process was, was teaching safety, right? Was safety, it's how to hold it. The goggles, right? where the chaps, yeah. How to hold it, how to cut, don't get too high. Yeah, all that, yeah. all that. So, so talk with us a little bit about design thinking. We've had one other guest on our show, um, Yvonne Carlson, who's also been doing a lot of creative things on the design thinking for, uh, for nonprofits. So just talk to us, how would you define that design thinking and how are organizations, especially ministries, using that concept to spark innovation inside their organizations? Sure. Well, you could probably define design or design thinking in several different ways. A lot of folks are focusing on design thinking or also the sort of sister idea called service design. Um, so design thinking is a great model for innovation. It's a five stage model, sort of a low barrier, easy entry model, a way, a framework that people can process through innovation. Right. So if you think about the definition of innovation. Um, you know, if you've got 100 people, you're asking the question of you're going to get 100 definitions. And if you ask, um, how do you innovate, you'll probably get 100 different ways or models or non models, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so we start off, I would just say, it's important to understand what a definition of innovation is, and there needs to be a generally agreed upon definition. So for me, um, and our team, we say, innovation on a baseline is proactively generating and executing new ideas that add value, hmm. right? Proactively mm -hmm. generating and executing new ideas that add value. If they don't add value, it's just an idea. It's not innovation. And so from that point, when we talk about design thinking, um, design thinking basically, um, and it sort of goes back to what I mentioned before about co-creation. It allows us to question our assumptions and to go gain, it begins with this concept of empathy, right? Five stages, empathy. And then you'll see uh, the term define as the second stage. I prefer the term reframe. I'll tell you why in a sec. 
um, and then ideation, prototype, and then test. And so it begins with empathy. The idea of empathy is simply going and gaining deep, deep insights from those you serve, your end users and your customers. There's a difference between those. Mm -hmm. um, and deep empathy is not just data, right? Um, I'm not opposed to data by any means. I think data is really helpful, but I also think it's incomplete. Um, empathy is essentially like data with a soul. So we're looking, um, it's rooted in story, number one because story allows us to get um, to the, the core essence of somebody's values and belief systems. Hmm. So I'm not just asking um, about the data, but I'm trying to determine deeply the why behind somebody um, believes something or buys a product or uses as a, a service. So empathy is that essence, that deep, deep um, kind of understanding of your end users and your customers to the point of understanding their beliefs and values. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the first stage. And so gaining empathy is the first stage. And then typically when we um, think about design thinking, you start with a challenge, right? So how might we HMW challenge, right? How might we XYZ, a short sentence? And it's based off of a challenge that your organization or your team or you've been dealing with. Could be something simple you can use at your home, right? Like the dishes. How might we get our kids to do the dishes at night and not leave them for the next morning? Assuming you're like me, you prefer to have your kids do them than do them yourself, right? So basic challenge at home. Um, it could be something much more complex. How might we mobilize people from the majority two-thirds world into Europe or into another location for one reason or another? So um, how might we uh, create a new performance uh, evaluation form for our, our staff members? So whatever the challenge is, it starts with a lot of assumptions. And so we go gain deep insights. And then that second stage of empathy is called define. And I like to call it reframe um, because really you're reframing or rewriting that challenge. You're saying, hey, we had assumptions when we first said this was the problem. We gained deep insights from our end users. And now we realize that wasn't the problem. This is the real problem. And so we define or reframe that challenge. So you kind of rewrite your challenge based on that reframe of your understanding of empathy. The third, that's the second stage. The third stage is ideation. So could um, you give could yeah. you give an example? Like like I don't know if if you can like the how might we help our kids learn to wash the dishes? And then in the reframe, how did how does the reframe change the the problem question? Yeah. Well, it depends on what you know, what you learn, what you learn. from your, yeah, yeah from yeah. your empathy. So yeah. do you have any examples you can share about that where it, it changed? Sure. Yeah, sure, sure. So, um, so we work with a lot of different NGOs um, and, you know, running them through a variety of, of, of projects, if you will, right? So um, that are design projects or design sprints, what have you. And so um, one of our organizations was an organization that sends folks from the United States overseas to do um, a variety of things, right? So um, it's a faith-based NGO and, um, and you've got people doing just a, a variety of things from like um, um, working with orphan, orphans around the world to um, well water systems, right? To anti-trafficking. Um, and so they want to mobilize people from the United States overseas. And so they said, hey, how might we um, reimagine the journey of somebody going overseas from their first thought of going overseas to maybe their first year or two on the field? Mm -hmm. And um, and so that was the challenge. They said, hey, we have to reimagine the pipeline. The pipeline's broken. And when they went and gained empathy from their end users, which are potential, if you will, candidates, I guess, for going overseas, 
they right. recognized the problem wasn't that the pipeline was broken. The problem was, well, actually, they learned there were a couple of problems. They said, number one, we're never really getting the same information from different staff. So we get recruited and then we come in and we meet a different team that tells us one thing. And then we meet it, then we get passed off to another team that tells mm. us another thing. And we get passed. And really they were sort of like a pinball machine passing people off to different teams, probably five or six teams before they would go overseas. And so the data that they were getting from different teams was incorrect. And they also found the process to be fairly um, um, impersonal. Mm. And so they discovered that it wasn't the pipeline that was broken. It was the sort of this concept of the relational connectedness that was broken. And so as they were ideating, one of their concepts was, hey, why don't we think about our pipeline as a concierge service? Mm -hmm. And so instead of um, meeting six different teams through that pipeline, let's have the last team they meet actually become the first team they meet and then process them through like a concierge, introducing them to different people, but never passing them off from one person to the other, which mm -hmm. increased that connectivity, increased the concept of of um, having that data be consistent from mm -hmm. team to team rather than inconsistent. And we've seen it on a number of different um, issues as well. We, I use the performance evaluation form because that was a, one, a, one of the projects that we actually work with. One of the organizations had um, a, I think it was like a five or six page performance eval form that the employees had to fill out and another form of about five or six pages, the staff leader had to fill out. And if you're managing eight or 10 people, it would be a month of work you'd have to do. Yeah, it's insane amount of writing and, and evaluation. So, um, and so they said the form is too long. And so it needs to be streamlined because it takes too long for the manager to fill out. What they realized the problem wasn't the issue of the manager. The problem was the issue of not feeling connected throughout the entire year of the employee. The employee would say, hey, my manager would never speak to me about my performance at all throughout the whole year. And then I get sort of... Um, uh, you know, uh, bamboozled with this, this, yeah. this, you know, five page document at the end of the year. And all of a sudden it would have been nice to have known the issues throughout the year and work on them rather than once a year. Yeah. So it was more of a relationship connectedness issue as well, not the length of the form. And although they did prototype multiple times and come up with a half page, one half page form, mm -hmm. um, what they did is they created an evaluation process that was highly relational that happened in real time all the time, right? where the employee is pursuing the manager and the manager is intentionally pursuing the staff member throughout the entire year, which therefore reduced the actual form length at the end. And we, they recognized they didn't need it at the end of the, at yeah. the end of the day, yeah. because they were actually doing, um, you know, sort of that process throughout the year instead. So the reframe is really built on, and that's the second stage built on that empathy. From that point, you go into ideation, the third stage in design thinking. And a lot of people like the term brainstorm. I don't um, because there are rule sets in ideation that make it so helpful, right? So things like um, suspend judgment, right? Build on the ideas of others. Um, and so when we talk about ideating, um, you know, as many ideas as possible, right? That's another rule set, right? We're just, we're not judging the efficacy of an idea. We're just throwing out as many of them as we can. And so that's the actual third stage. And we will, I would say, we conservatively, when we run an ideation um, process, when we run a design process, we get the ideation stage for probably almost 90, 95% of the, the teams or organizations we've done it with. 
we'll have 300 to 500 ideas on the wall um, within a few hours, like literally that many. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, then we have to make sense of them, categorize them um, and, and reduce them down into, um, you know, a, a very small amount of, of, of ideas. We'll pick an idea or two or three and then we'll move into the fourth stage, which is called prototyping. And basically prototyping is building a physical representation of your idea. And when we prototype, we say your prototype needs to be rough, rapid, and right. And so we want it rough because it's not going to be perfect. We don't, like you mentioned earlier, right? We don't want to be married to our, our ideas. Mm -hmm. And the more time we spend on creating something, the more pride we have in that idea. And the harder it is to, like you said, Chad, to, to release the grip, right? Mm -hmm. And be a steward, not an owner, right? So just make it rough. Um, we want it super scrappy. Um, we want it rapid. Do it quick. Right. Because the more time we spend on it, um, of course, the more ownership we have on it. And then we get too granular on it. Um, so we don't want to get very granular on that idea. And then when we say right. We don't mean it has to be correct. We mean it, we mean it has to go right back to the empathy. It has to reflect the needs and the values and the beliefs of your end user. And so rough, rapid and right. That's how we build a prototype. And when I say physical representation, I mean a scrappy physical representation. You yeah. could build a, a prototype right now with whatever's in front of you. A pen, piece of paper, tape, glue, um, I don't care what it is, uh, whatever that idea is, if you sit and think long enough, it could be a journey map, could be a sketch, could be a skit, um, but ideally, I like to see something that's a physical representation. And then the fifth uh, stage in design thinking is testing. And it's exactly what it sounds like. So, and of course, who do we test it with? It's our end users, right? So we take that prototype and go back and test it with our end users. and. Um, that's the process of design thinking. Um, there's a lot on the back end. It's where things typically get um, destroyed. <laughs> it's where, right? And, and the testing process is, is um, it requires a lot of sort of intellectual discipline, I think, because mm -hmm. our goal is not to win. Our goal is not to prove the idea was right. And then to get affirmation from our end users, we mm -hmm. want to test it like an engineer testing a bridge in the lab. So our goal is to break it. Our goal is to find out what are the stress, stress, stress tested, find out what the weak points are, what were the assumptions we are wrong on, right? So we're building this minimal viable product. We're going to those people, our end users, and we're getting feedback from them. We're figuring out how does this meet or not meet. Um, and so the goal is learning. It's not a final. And we say, you test, you test, you test, you test. So it's this iterative long process. So, so how long, because I've, I've led some even inside my own company and a couple other organizations through what Google Ventures wrote a book called um, Sprint. It, it sounds like it's applying the design, I think design sprints. And so mm -hmm. for us, that is a week long process where we cycle yeah. through everything that you just described. How long, how, how long do you usually see the whole design thinking process when you're tackling a, an organizational question? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the, the longest part of it is the, is the beginning, the very beginning part, of course, the ending part. So the very beginning part is empathy, right? So we have our, our challenge um, that we have to admit has number of assumptions built into that challenge. Um, and so we identify who are our end users, who are our customers, who are our common users, and then who are our extreme users. So kind of look at that on a grid. Um, identify who those people are, definitely differentiating between each of those. 
Um, and then once we identify who they are, of course, we've got a team put together some pre-work done earlier. Who's the power source? Who's you know kind of the project champion? Who's the team? We help people understand what are the questions that you need to be asking around um, gaining empathy. How am I going to gain empathy? How am I going to record it? But that's the time. That's where it takes a bit more time. And ideally, you'll take several weeks up to maybe a month, six weeks, eight weeks, gaining empathy, right? Um, gaining deep insights from those people that you're serving. You're collecting all that information. And then it moves faster. Let me ask you a quick question about that. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm making an assumption that it's easy for the person who's doing the research to gain that empathy, but the other people on the team may not be directly involved in that research. How is the, the emotional part of that empathy passed on to the others in the team to, so that they all have the same empathy towards the, uh, towards the users? Right. Yeah. So that's a great question. It's not always easy, right? Because our ideas, like you said, we're emotionally connected to our ideas. Um, and so, um, so there, you know, there is, I'm trying to think, I believe it's actually, I believe it's Stanford that teaches think, feel, say, do. Um, it's just a model. So um, when you get information from your uh, end users, you're asking the question, you know, wh what were they doing? What were they saying? Um, what were they thinking and what were they feeling? So you are making some inference from that. Um, but ideally, you're not making too much of an inference because if you're gaining empathy right, you're going deep and you're understanding what those emotions are behind them. And then you're behind what they're, what your end user was saying. Um, and you're collecting that information and you're articulating that information back to the team. I think um, we've got to keep in mind, um, this process of design thinking is very iterative. So when I go to stage two, I'm going back to one as well, empathy. I go to three, I'm ideating with empathy in mind. And then when I'm testing, you're going to be wrong. You're never going to be spot on. You're testing with your end users and you're determining um, what were the mistakes we made even about our empathy. So you're going back again, I'm sorry, even about the original empathy. So you're taking your test again back to your end users, essentially gaining more empathy. Um, it's a self-correcting process. And so we'll never be spot on, but I think that's why we always say it's iterative, right? So we're testing that with our end users and then we retweak that prototype and we retest it again. And eventually, because we're co-creating it with them, by them, for them, um, we can nail that empathy and really understand the deep values and needs of our end users when we've done it well and we've done it repetitively. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really really good, really helpful. So so now, as far as your organization, uh, you, know, you provide this level of thinking and training for other organizations as well. Is that correct? That you'll you'll actually come alongside and consult. So what are the some of the services? Like if I were interested in, in, in bringing into the design thinking into 5Q, what are some of the service off offerings or options that, that uh, the Innovation Labs has to, to offer? Sure. Yeah. So we, and it's funny because you talk about assumptions and we had our own assumptions, right? About what, what our end users needed and wanted and so forth. And so we initially started running projects around very specific challenges. Um, and, and like you had said earlier, you know, you went, you were involved in a five-day project. That's not uncommon. Um, well, we were often run one to three day projects um, that are not including the time to gain empathy on the front end, and they're not including the time to test your prototype on the back end. So it's just that middle piece, right, from sort of stages two to creating um, back end of stage four, your prototype. And so we started running projects and we discovered that the back end of innovation 
is really hard. It's really hard for people, right? So, so um, you said that a couple of times, just define yeah, yeah. what you mean by the back end of innovation. Sure. So you've got this idea, your prototype, and now you want to go test it. Many yeah. of us haven't been trained in how do you test a prototype? Um, because, and you have all these potential obstacles in that. You've got power sources within your organization that you've got to get approval from. You've got budgetary issues. You've got a team of people that are probably a cross-functional team um, mm -hmm. that haven't worked on something like this before. And so you've got the issues of how do we work well together on a cross-functional team. Um, you've got the issue of margins. Most of us don't have a lot of margins built into our, our capacities mm -hmm. um, to do something like this. You've got the issue of um, I'm trying to, you know, uh, sort of launch this potential um, innovation, a novel idea for organization, while at the same time, simultaneously driving our core competencies and our, and our typical deliveries. Yep. Um, and then you've got conflict. You, there are so many reasons why that what we call the back end piece um, yeah. can break that can break down. And then, of course, the team might be really excited about it, but the rest of the organization has no idea what you're doing. And so if you haven't created a culture of innovation, um, in your organization, then you really stand out as an anomaly and you're fighting uphill. So that back end piece is really difficult. And so we, for offerings, if you put it that way, I guess uh, we initially started running projects around specific challenges. Um, but then we learned that it also breaks down because of this issue of the culture of innovation. In other words, we, we haven't tapped into the collective intelligence of our entire team, right? That's sort of the broader culture of innovation isolated to a few people doing a project. Um, and so one of those challenges is that when you go and you, you try to process through that backend piece of testing your prototype with your end users and so forth, you come up a, a, with the cultural issue of innovation, right? It's not diffused within the organization. And so um, there's also the issue of language. I mentioned earlier, tools, language, mindsets, postures, those two, right? Tools and language are on one side of the coin, Mindsets of postures on the other side of the coin. And so we discovered because um, it's, um, it's rather challenging to run those projects without having the right mindsets and postures, we probably need to do a bit more, um, the lab seeds on helping people understand what are the mindsets and postures? How do I, how do I understand my own capacity, mm -hmm. proclivity to maybe be an obstructionist in that process? Um, and then how do I get out of the way? And so we do a lot of work on mindsets and postures, hmm. not just uh, innovation tools and language. And so then we, we spun up a class called Innovation Essentials One, right? We have two of them, IE1, IE2. And um, IE1 basically covers everything about design thinking, tools, language, and mindsets and postures. It's a week-long class. Mm -hmm. um, so we ran that several times and then COVID hit. And we had a, um, a, a, a organization in Kenya. We were going to fly to Kenya to work with about 25 or 30 Africans on teaching IE1, this course. And uh, we couldn't. And so they were, they were like, hey, listen, you got to give us something, right? This is, we can't come there. You can't come here. So we, um, we said, okay, let's leverage our own understanding of innovation and design. So we spun up a prototype in two weeks. Awesome. Um, we bought a access to teachable.com, which is a great, like online teaching platform mm -hmm. and, um, uh, you know, shot a bunch of videos. Mine were here with this, you know, all my stuff in the background <laughs> and, and the rest of our teams are in their apartments and their uh -huh. living rooms and bedrooms. And, um, so we ran a prototype, um, and then we ran it four more times, um, with four, three, uh, three more times with three different organizations. Uh, we got some funding. 
um, reshot all of our videos based on the end user feedback that we gained. And so we call that course Design Thinking for Innovation. So we have um, a series of courses that folks can take that are uh, virtual courses. Um, that's kind of a short you know, shot in the arm yeah. um, to longer courses uh, like IE1 or IE2. So mm -hmm. essentially our lab uh, runs organizations through, I like to think about it on basically three or four fronts. We run them through projects around very specific challenges. That's number one. Number two, we run um, courses that are physical, face-to-face -face and virtual, COVID pending, obviously, um, on design thinking, innovation, mindsets, postures, um, as well as how do I facilitate? Like, how do I turn around and teach my organization? Um, we also do quite a bit of consulting around strategy execution and cultures of innovation. Um, that's a big piece of what our team does as well. Um, again, because um, we recognize this issue of cultures of innovation is a real challenge for organizations these days. Yeah. And, and if I'm not mistaken, you actually offer a certification process that a person can be certified in design thinking. Talk to us about that. That's right. Yeah. So it's essentially a combination of those two longer one week long courses, Innovation Essentials 1, uh, Mindsets, Postures, right? Language Tool, and IE2, Innovation Essentials 2, which is more around change management, execution of your ideas, facilitation, um, and we're actually dabbling with uh, prototype right now on that second course. We're not sure what we're going to do with it, but one of the ideas we have is to make it just highly practical. So the course is not, it's very unlike the first one. The, yeah. uh, the first one is practical, but there's a lot of just really good learning and reflection in that process. But the second one would be potentially more about taking your specific challenges and then you actually running, uh, you know, running a team through that. So, yeah, so that's what our certification is. Um, but it's interesting, you know, we've, for us, we've, we learned these things because we made the mistakes, right? Um, that's how we learned. We learned that we were the greatest obstacle to innovation uh, because we ourselves were and probably still to some degree are. Um, you know, it's the human condition, right? In each and every one of us. And so we've got to set up um, a way that we can not only have a good language and tool, but we can really, in a loving way, hold each other accountable to those mindsets and postures and be able to move conversations forward and not get stuck because of our habituality. And so everything we've done, none of us were smart enough to figure anything out. Um, it's just been from, you know, God's grace, one door opening to another, to another, like I mentioned early on with my, my brother, um, our opportunity to learn from, from some of the best. And then, um, and then just, you know, stumbling our way through the, through the process. Um, so it's been a fun process and journey for us, but we're, we're still learning too, you know? That's that's great. I'm I'm just thinking about a lot of the ministries that listen to this. They're really steeped into the digital side of things, and mm -hmm. on, with digital, it used to say uh, one year is like seven internet years. Um, <laughs> so things are just rapidly changing all the time. And I, I mean, I can see I can see teams that would really really benefit from this kind of thinking, so that you don't get stuck in a rut. You don't get uh, you, you're you're open to looking at other areas, other industries to be, be able to bring those, those things in. And how can we, with a kingdom-minded focus, take the things that are being done in the secular world and apply those for, for, yeah. for kingdom gain? And, and so I, I think the, the design thinking that you're talking about can really apply at a department level at a, uh, as well as at a C-suite organizational level as well. And, and the other, other areas of thinking about it, because I, I know I worked inside of an NGO for a while, and 
there was this, in, uh, you know, started in the bottom and then it was middle management and then had some leadership. But a, a big part of it was learning to um, move your ideas up the chain and having others above you to be able to, to, to gain understanding. And, and so I, I would think that having the, even if it's a departmental or as a leader, having understanding some of the design thinking concepts can help you better articulate and gain buy-in for, uh, for, for things that's going to help the organization out. Yeah, I, I agree hundred percent. I mean, we, we have this mantra, um, leaders don't like it. Um, but it's, we basically say the closer you are to the top, the farther you are from the truth. Oh, yeah. And so this concept of a culture of innovation is essentially tapping into the collective intelligence of the entire organization, regardless of where they're at on their org chart. I mean, imagine if you're a leader, you don't have to solve the problems of the organization because people understand how to take an idea, create a minimal viable product, go test it with people, tweak it, right? Make it better and launch novel ideas for your organization. Um, and, you, and, and they're empowered to do that, right? And so um, it's interesting. We, um, we've been doing a lot of work around this idea of cultures of innovation. We actually have a assessment tool coming out on our website in probably uh, two or three weeks. Um, maybe, gosh, by the end, I hope by the end of March, um, it'll be a free tool. Um, basically, yeah. we focus on four areas. So we say um, for culture of innovation, you've got to focus on strategy. You've got to focus on people and culture. That's one together. You got to, the third is process and tools and the, and the fourth are metrics. Um, and so it's just a sort of a gap analysis. You go on, you ask, you answer questions around those four areas. We've got about six or eight questions each. Um, but one of them, like you mentioned on strategy is the question, does your, you know, does your innovation program have executive support? What does that mean? Do they themselves understand the language and tools of innovation and design thinking? Um, because if it doesn't, obviously it, it becomes a barrier to you actually executing innovation on your team. Yeah. Let me know when you launch that, because this podcast sure. is probably going to drop about that time. And so we can be sure to include the link um, when, when it goes live. So yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. We're, we think it's a pretty, uh, a fun tool and should yeah. be an enlightening tool. So yeah, that'd be great. Good. Rob, this is, I, I've got about a dozen more questions, but I think we're at time right now. Um, super, super helpful. Uh, could, could you just share, uh, like you've shared a lot about, a lot about the learning in the design technology or design thinking space. Uh, share, what's one book, blog, or resource that you've read recently that you can share and recommend to our audience? Gosh. Okay. So I've got a list of them. I'm looking over the top of my computer <laughs> at my shelf here. I'm like, and then I've got another small list over here. So I, you know, I'm one of those people that starts a lot of books. I don't necessarily finish as many as I probably uh -huh. should. <laughs> so uh -huh. I'll give you a couple. How's that? So um, the first I'd say is if you've never read the innovators DNA, um, Clay mm -hmm. Christensen and some others read the innovators DNA. It's a great book. Another would be uh, creative confidence by the Kelly brothers. Um, yeah. That is a stellar book. And, um, and I think, it's so good because we, you know, when, when we do anything we do, whether it's a project or a teaching or what have you, training, um, coaching, mentoring, consulting, we always have people check in to what we call our secret sauce. I'm not going to tell you what all the secret sauce uh, ingredients are, right? But I'll tell you one. Um, and one of them is this idea of tapping into um, your, your creative creativity, right? Creative mm -hmm. capacities. And it's interesting when I survey people at the very beginning, we'll get folks in a room and I'll say, hey, tell me how many of you are creative? And nine times out of 10, less than 30% will raise their, their hands. And then I'll ask the question, how many of you are made in the image of God? Of course, everybody will raise their hands. Yeah. 
And, um, and the reality is if you're made in the image of God, which we believe we are right. And God is a creative God. I'll just look outside. Um, then we have creative capacities and we're actually designed to create. And so, and I think creative confidence, although it is not a Christian book by any means, um, has some really good principles in there that help me realize and gain confidence, um, you know, to think more divergently and recognize actually do have creative capacity. So that's a great starter book. It's not on design things specifically, but it touches all over. You'll love it. That's great. I, what you're describing there reminds me of when I read the book, um, A Whole New Mind by Daniel Pink. And he describes going into a, again, not, not a Christian book, but he describes taking a drawing class. And the first thing mm-hmm. they had him do was draw a self-portrait. And he showed his self-portrait. And it was, it was about like what mine would look like, a stick figure right. with, uh, with right. the legs. And then they, and they said, that was the best that I could do. And then after going through this this uh, um, drawing class at the end of it, they drew a self-portrait and the change was astronomical. And, and just to, to know that we have the capacity inside of us for the, those creative things. And uh, no, that's, that's great. Rob, this has been fantastic. Really appreciate you sharing um, just, just the wealth of information, not just information, but the wisdom and, and understanding that, that you have. How, how can folks get a hold of you um, what's your website, your email? What's the, what's the best way to folks to get a hold of you if they want to, to, to learn more about some of the some of the things that you're doing? Sure. Well, I can be emailed at rob at seedsinnovation.com, rob at seedsinnovation.com, um, or just go on our website. You can find all of us there, our team there, which is seedsinnovation.com. So um, yeah, pretty easy. And of course, if they have problems, I suppose they could email you and and you could connect them to myself as well. So um, I'm not giving out my cell phone number, just my wife and I have this agreement. So, but yeah, email me is great. great. And that, and we'd love to connect with anybody. And, and you know, just if folks have questions, uh, any ministry folks that you work with have questions or just need to get a, a call to, you know, to have a sounding board, we're really happy to do it. We do that all the time. We have a, a team of seven um folks on our team right now. And, um, and they love nothing more than just spending time, you know, consulting with folks and just giving some feedback. So happy to do that. Great. Rob, thanks so much for joining us today. Been really good. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Chad.